City Limits. Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City City Limits. There we are, acres and acres of tower. I've just written over them, actually, madly, <laughs> to get here. <laughs> yep. And uh, here we are, uh, turning away from the mic, here we are. Um, and it is City Limits, it's the third Wednesday of the month, third Wednesday, third show of the year, in fact, and uh, it's Housing Day, and we're going to be talking to Shane McGrath from the Housing with the Age Action Group uh, shortly, and... Also, a couple of others, a couple of other regulars this morning. Zeb, Zeb Peaks over there. I'm Kevin Healy. Karina, see, Karina, welcome. Hi there. <laughs> Long time <laughs> no see. Karina this morning went and, I don't know what it says about our tea there, Zeb, but Karina went and made her own coffee this morning. Ah. Yes, well. <laughs> I think we feel rejected. I feel rejected. Uh, no, <laughs> I forgot my ADHD meds today, so I'm so I'm on the the instant coffee. Oh, okay, whatever, whatever. Uh, we'll we'll put up with it. Um, and uh, Seb, anyway, get guests, the other guests. Uh, yes, we've got Catherine Murdoch and Jack Verdon's coming in um, about halfway through the show to talk about housing as well. Radio, and they've got. Uh, there's been an eviction they want to talk about, which is yeah, quite so, concerning. Yeah, we'll be talking about Louise Good's eviction, mm. um, as well as some other topics, including there's been some more conversation in the federal government about um, money for public housing that Jack was keen to talk about. Yeah, well, it's not actually public housing. That's the point. Isn't it? I'm sure that's what Jack wants to make. In fact, uh, Ye- they're talking. They yeah. talk continually about. About uh, social and affordable housing, but the words the word public just never gets a mention at all. But uh, anyway, and the Greens are trying to do something. Oh, even last night, though, we might raise this with them. But even on the news last night, a Green spokesperson was talking about we need more money for social and affordable. But again, didn't use the word word up yeah. public either, which it's, it's the Greens up to now have been using. But uh, last yeah. night. didn't hear anything anyone wanted to raise. I've got a couple. I'm going to pour some tea, by the way. But I'm, yeah. Only two of us having it, but there we are. Well, while That's you pour the tea, I mean, we all know it, but there's a good um, article from The Conversation that came out. Um, it's Big Oil's trade group allies. Oops, just reach my tea. Um, Big Oil's trade group allies outspent clean energy groups by a whopping 27 times with billions in ads and lobbying to keep fossil fuels flowing. So we all know that like the fossil fuel lobby spends billions in advertising to try and convince us that, you know, oil and gas are fine. Um, But 27 times the amount of, of the clean energy groups is pretty impressive. So, yeah, I just thought that was a... A nice, depressing article to start off with. And that was the point raised on the interview we, we played last week from from, um, from Democracy Now! about the fact that they, they've taken over the agenda. And last week we were remiss. We didn't thank Karina, by the way, because Karina put that together for us and did the did the groundwork to get it on here. So thanks, Karina, uh, for doing that. Uh, and... Um, the um, well, just uh, there's a there was a small there's an article and it's going to build up I'm sure um, it's called Run for the Kids 
And of course, our old mate, the Herald Sun's involved with Transurban, the company that makes all its money out of freeways in Melbourne. Um, they call them freeways. They call them, um, well, <laughs> freeways. But in fact, of course, uh, they say it's, well, yeah, it's worth paying money, of course, because you, you move so much faster. But of course, you move faster if it's three in the morning. But most of the day, in fact, you're in gridlock. So all you're doing is paying money to be in gridlock there rather than being gridlock on a road you didn't have to pay money for. Although there's an argument that motorists should pay money, but it shouldn't go to a private company. That's a different question. Anyway, um, they, the, since 2006, the Herald Sun Transurban Run for the Kids event has raised more than $20 million for the Royal Children's Hospital. On they go. And, of course, it's a day when I think it is a Sunday, nonetheless, but still the you know, roads around and Transurban itself's roads are closed. Uh, now, if protesters, if people protesting about forests, about climate, about anything... Uh, went and spent 10 minutes closing a road, they're likely to go to jail for 15 months or get fined hundreds of dollars. But now uh, the newspaper that, that would attack those people for being terribly irresponsible and stopping business and preventing people going about their business is happy to close roads for a whole morning or a large part of a day with the freeway owner, with the, with the um, trans, with transurban, um, to raise money for something that should be be funded anyway out of public funds. We've currently got a crisis in health, but a crisis in health is because we haven't got enough money. If we haven't got enough money, let's raise more and pay for it because the free health system, Medicare, is supposed to provide free care for everybody. And, of course, so much of the money, thanks to Howard and company over the years, goes into the private health system and into people who take out private health insurance and the private health insurance companies they should get nothing. I mean, all the money we raise for health should go straight into public health and pub and public clinics that provide doctors locally all over the places they used to do. We've still fortunately got one in Brunswick, but most places haven't. That's my comment on that. That's all. <laughs> it was a good comment. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and a bit of a, a disaster uh, arising out of that uh, coroner's report and it was quite a you know terrible report haunting report about uh or harrowing report anyway about um veronica nelson and being killed in in jail uh by by the system uh but the 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 age of course people would have seen it last week it was a front page story but the highest ranking official at the women's women's prison where she died said the indigenous the family was simply out to um, find someone to blame and they shouldn't feel responsible, etc. When in fact, of course, they'd really they were highly responsible by I mean, the terrible action of, of doing nothing while she was screaming and yelling. But anyway, apparently um, they just wanted to blame someone, so they blamed the prison authorities. And I thought, well. Who else is she going to blame? She's in there. <laughs> I, um, I miss this article, but that really sucks. When the coroner went through the findings a couple of Mondays ago, it was it was everyone at every level of authority that she came in contact to that failed her, from the very first police officer who shouldn't have arrested her in the first place and had the power to grant bail there and then all the way to the end. Um Yep, so, down the line, it was absolute, but in the end she died very painfully and dreadfully. Yeah. It's the awful thing. Yeah. Now, back in December, a court found in a case of a person called Pearson, because uh, since um, the governments have been tightening up and we've got to have border control and all that sort of thing, as we know, we have to have um, 
we, we actually deport people that come out of jail. Once they do their time, if they're not Australian citizens, they're put in detention, as we know, and eventually sent back somewhere or other. Many of them New Zealanders these days, of course. But the law was changed. It used to be that, that if, you, if your sentence you got was two years or more, then you'd be taken to a detention centre when your time was up and, and deported. But now it's 12 months, and it could be cumulative 12 months, so you might get you might get 12 one-month sentences, but after that you've done 12 months, and so you can be deported. And, you know, if, you get the, if, you're doing, if you're cumulatively or even 12 months doing that, they're not major crimes. I mean, they're... They're not probably, they're pretty bad, who knows, but whatever. Could be smoking a bit of dope or something. Um, they, But they're not going to be major crimes that get you years, are they? And yet they've changed the, they changed the law that happened. Now, this Pearson one was a case that appealed against it, and the court found that that, in fact, was uh, was not, was shouldn't shouldn't be held, and that uh, it uh, it overruled the 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 government and said the cancellation should only apply in the most serious matters and so the 12-month thing was overthrown but rather than show some compassion for people the current Labor government in Canberra has brought in a bill called the Migration Amendment Aggregate Sentence Bill 2023 uh, tabled last week and it in fact attempts to overrule what the court overruled and bring back that particular mandatory, mandatory, you know, cumulative 12 months, out you go. And all sorts of groups in the society community are opposing it very strongly. Um, but it's just, it's just quite astonishing. Um, a few people quote some... Um, Hannah Dickinson, who's the principal solicitor at the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre, unnecessary, cruel, politicised policy making, and in particular the retrospective overruling, because it's retrospective, by the way, so people who've been let out already can be put back in. Because um, when when the ruling was made in the in the court, uh, people were released from detention who who fitted that bill. Now this uh, this bill will retrospectively put them back in again. So it's it's that's one of the worst things as well. It's retrospective. Um, and she says it's a hallmark of previous governments, an approach that has harmed thousands of individuals and families, eroded the rule of law and left Australia's migration system in disarray. Um, and um, Sarah Dale from the Refugee Advice and Casework Service said the last decade has seen an extraordinary creep of ministerial and cancellation powers curtailing the rights and liberties of migrants and refugees. The court made a finding of proportionate balance. It was a step toward a more humane system. This bill returns us to perpetuating a system of abject cruelty and not the promised restoration of justice we hope from a change in government. And there's lots of other quotes from various people there, but... Um, again, it's something that uh, we hope doesn't get through. It's probably one bit of government legislation the bloody opposition will support. Yeah, yeah, and it goes to show, you know, Labor um, aren't really that different to the Liberals in, in many respects, sadly. We're trying to find any at this stage, pretty much. Oh, there's a couple of areas, but not too many. Yeah. Uh, again, like, as I, said on, as I said the other day, it was slight hyperbole, but... You know, Richard Miles is almost making, as I said last week, almost making Peter Dutton look like a Quaker. But uh, certainly Richard Miles is no different to Dutton in terms of his attitude to war, to to spending fortunes on the merchants of death, to uh, to saying we must, you know, virtually saying we're going to have to have war with China at some point. It's just, it's just, it's just quite dreadful. Yeah. Now we're going <sighs> to get on to Shane soon. Do you have yeah. any last 
Oh, I had a few things, but look, no, we'll get on to Shane because we've got a full-on program and uh, all the other things I've got are just, uh, no one needs to know about them anyway. They probably do already know about them before I tell them, so what's it matter? Um, so uh, let's get on to Shane and yeah. let's, uh, let's move the program on. Join us for the upcoming public forum, Sovereignty, Shreedy and First Nations Justice, hosted by Green Left on Monday, February 20th at 6.30pm at the Drill Hall on 506 Elizabeth Street. With the upcoming referendum on Voice to Parliament, discussion about the best ways to fight for Shreedy, Sovereignty and First Nations Justice have been growing. The massive Invasion Day protests of tens of thousands of people across the country is another sign of the growing movement for First Nations justice. Hear from two long-standing First Nations activists, Uncle Gary Murray and Lydia Forbes, about their views on how to advance treaty, sovereignty and justice for First Nations people and their views on the current discussion about voice to Parliament. 6.30pm Monday, February 20th at the Drill Hall on 506 Elizabeth Street. Green Left is a free CR supporter. Three CR is community owned and operated, and because of its subscriber base, it is free of any financial dependence. Help to sustain a truly independent radio service by subscribing online at www.3cr.org.au or by ringing the station on 9419-8377 and pressing 1 on the keypad to subscribe. Okay, back on City Limits on 3CR, and we've got Shane from the Housing for the Age Action Group on air now. How are you going, Shane? Uh, Good, thanks. How are you doing? Yeah, pretty good. We rushed into the station a little bit late this morning, so sorry for getting you on a bit later than planned. (laughs) Um, But yeah, should we start with any main updates from Housing for the Age Action Group? Uh, look, I don't know if we really have any any big updates. The exciting news for us is that we're uh, renovating and expanding our office, but I guess that's probably not so exciting for the listeners. <laughs> well, there's probably more room to put up people who can't find housing, uh, Shane. Uh, yeah, that's put, right. Throw a, throw a, mattress, throw a mattress in each corner. Well, that's right. I mean, if we have a mattress in each corner, I'm just going to be taking a nap in the afternoon. Uh, I wouldn't be complaining about that. <laughs> Yeah, but um, but in fact, there was an article that goes back a while, but it was it was related to the Victorian election. But I think it was, there was an article in the Age that the headline was simply "Older Victorians Facing Housing Crisis as Costs Go Through the Roof." I think that was meant to be a pun, I suppose. Um, but um, this is something that you, you know, your your group does face every day, isn't it? Sorry, I think I missed part of what you said. Then sorry, sorry, I think I missed part of your question. Well, that's it. I mean, the the, the fact that uh, older people are finding their costs going through the roof, particularly those in rentals, I mean, this is a problem that you must be facing as the Housing with Age Action Group. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, obviously it's not just older people. The the cost of living crisis is affecting everyone and the, the extent to which rents are going up is affecting everyone. Um, but, but, yeah, I, I mean, definitely our intake workers are, are literally every day um, taking calls from older people who can't afford the rent that they're, they're being asked to pay. How do you handle it? Because I mean, we know public housing is a crisis. 
um, you know, it's so much going into so-called social and community and whatever affordable means housing. Where are you putting these people? Um, I mean, public and social housing are still our priorities, the, the kinds of housing that we think are best for older people. But you're right, like we often do have to look for other kinds of accommodation that's going to be suitable. Um, and, and that can involve some, some really difficult choices and compromises, you know, Maybe for some people, private rental is going to end up being the best thing, even though we've always said that that's not a suitable sort of accommodation for older people. You know, we look at things like rental villages, which can be very expensive uh, and limited in their uh, facilities. Um, you know, we look at things like ILUs, which at some point were one of the better option, housing options for older people, but now a lot of that stock is depleted, diminished, um, un- under-renovated, um, closing down, turning into residential care, you know, all kinds of things like that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't think there's a, really a good answer to your question. Yeah, which, which always highlights the problem, doesn't it? And the, and the need, of course, when the government in the last couple of days from the election it made promises, but now it's talking about fulfilling them. But what the government's talking about does nothing to address any any shortage of public housing as such. Uh, yeah, that's right. And I mean, we know that the Victorian government is continuing to pursue these kind of quote-unquote redevelopments that, that don't, uh, you know, that, that throw people out of public housing and, um, you know, try and create these public-private partnerships, these kinds of social mixes that they fantasise about um, and hand over that money to the, the private sector or the, the not-for-profit sector. Mm. Yeah, and also, of course, you've been involved, you've heavily involved, you've talked about it several times on this program, in the campaign in recent years and the hearings, which have made life a little better for tenants and given them a few more rights than they used to have. Uh, But I see landlords are still... um, Well, just because it's summer, we'll start with this one. Um, The fact that there doesn't seem to be any obligation on providing anything that can cool a house down in hot weather, air conditioning, etc., or um, or any or even any other method that would that would make a or house somewhat cooler. That's that's one that apparently has has slipped past. Uh, yeah, I mean, you wouldn't say it slipped past because that implies that you know nobody knew about it or it was a you know it was an accident. Um, the government, you know, when it made, when it introduced uh, minimum excuse me when it introduced rental minimum standards for rental properties, um, which does include things like heating, you know. Um, certain kinds of locks, bathrooms, bins, all kinds of things. Um, definitely HAG and other organisations advocated for things that would help with cooling, including mm. um, air conditioners, including insulation, uh, and the government made an explicit decision not to introduce those minimum standards. Um, you, I think you know that some of the minimum standards are going to be phased in over... Well, were designed to be phased in over a few years, um, we have uh, some new minimum standards that are going to be introduced, uh, what is it, the end of next month um, around heating and cooling um, with the idea that, you know, some minimum standards the landlords would be able to do right away. Some of them they would need more time to prepare um, for things like, you know, energy efficiency and stuff like that. Um, I think the government's theory is that the minimum standards for heating probably means that most landlords will will start in, start installing um, split systems to meet the, the minimum standards for heating. But, yeah, you're, you're right that there's no requirement for them to provide air conditioning. 
um, even though you know heat waves are a, a serious cause of, of illness and death for older people. Yeah, and was it was it not would you not pursued because it had the behest of, of landlords themselves? One assumes the landlord said, "Look, this is going to be too costly," or something. Is that the reason? I mean, I couldn't tell you why they decided not to introduce a minimum standard for cooling. It, it seemed like, you know, if you're going to tell them they've got to put in heaters, you might as well tell, you know, if they're going to complain about that, you might as well require them to put in air conditioning as well. Yeah, um, it doesn't, make, doesn't, doesn't actually match up in the logic department, does it? No, I mean, insulation, the reason that insulation, you know, not, not the official reason, but the real reason is that the pink bat scandal still casts a massive shadow over all levels of government. And if you say insulation to a politician, they, they blanch and turn the other way. Um, but, you know, I mean, that's a big problem as well because what we've said to the government is it's, it's, it's not helpful to introduce a minimum standard that your landlord's got to provide heating if there's no insulation so the heat is just flowing straight out of the building, you know. It's only driving up heating costs mm. in the way that the, the heating minimum standard is supposed to bring them down. Can you just because I am young slash maybe haven't paid attention to the news. Um, can you explain what that scandal was? Um, I mean, I don't know that I can. I would have to have uh, done some research for this episode. Um, I mean, this was a Rudd-era scheme that involved the, the sort of subsidised installation of, of... Sorry, subsidised installation of insulation made that sentence very hard to pronounce for myself. <laughs> uh, and some of the workers, or at least one of the workers who was involved in installing it, died on the job. And this was a, a, a big, fairly big scandal. Tony Abbott made a lot of political capital out of it. He held and a royal commission into it, in fact. Uh, of course he did. Uh, the, um, <laughs> um, so, yeah, it, it, I think it has left a lot of politicians very nervous about the idea of doing anything to do with insulation. Right, right. Um, And I guess, like, as well as, um, you know, introducing these minimum standards that landlords have to to uphold, like, um, uh, is there any mechanism to, like, prevent landlords from sort of upping their rent to cover uh, the cost of that and um, pushing the cost onto the renters? No, I mean, that's the intended way that it's supposed to work. Right. Okay. <laughs> um, I mean, at the moment, tenants don't really need to worry about the landlords putting up the cost because they're installing appliances because landlords are putting the rent up so much anyway. Like the the general inflation and the general, like you know, rent increase levels that we're seeing are, are far beyond what you would worry about if it was because someone had put a heater in or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And at the other end of the scale. Um, uh, those phasing phasing in of various things you talked about. One is next by the end of next month, uh, landlords have to ensure that the electricity system in houses is is, is quite safe, and a lot of them have to put in um, a fair bit of new work on it. Um, but there's speculation that a lot of landlords won't have done it by the time the um, the, the deadline comes up. Uh, so people could well be living in houses that are still dangerous in terms of their electrical network. Uh, but um, one assumes that uh, if it's too costly, therefore it's better for the landlord for the house to burn down or something. Is it, Shane? I, mean, I can't work that one out. 
Yeah, I mean, it's always a strange thing, isn't it, that landlords seem so indifferent to safety measures that you would think would primarily protect their own property, um, whether it's, you know, safety switches or electrical safety or smoke detectors or, or whatever it is, you know, gas leaks, all that kind of thing. Um, but, yeah, you're right. I, I mean, the, the problem is that there are, you know, th- this comes back to, like, all the things that we've talked about already today, Tenants have certain options that they could pursue if the landlord fails to, to comply with the rental minimum standards. But they're going to be worried that if they do that, the rent's going to go up prohibitively. And the rent is already so extreme that uh, you know it, it's going to be very difficult for a lot of people to exercise what are theoretically their rights. Mm. And even though um, these new rules have come in, many, many tenants, which we know, are still living in quite substandard conditions, but you regularly get reports that they, at the point you just raised, they're too afraid to raise it for fear of either, as you say, rent going up or even being evicted or whatever, but they, they just feel, they just feel um, it would be unsafe to, to raise issues that ought to be raised and, in fact, would conform to law. Yeah, I mean... Uh... I'm a renter, and I find that myself, you know, we've got problems that we could get the landlord to fix, but, you know, we've already asked him to fix so many things. Like, how how far are you willing to push these things before it's going to damage the relationship? um, And, you know, also just don't want the landlord coming around every five minutes to fix one of the other things that's broken because we're trying to live in a house we can actually afford. Um, You know, I think it's a reasonable fear that tenants have, and the government hasn't really done anything to, to try and address it. Mm. We've seen calls from the Greens at the federal level for a, a, a freeze on rent rises for um, to, to deal with the crisis, and that, that's not something that the government's been at all interested in considering. But, uh, I mean, it, it's hard to see what else is going to make a difference. Yeah, and another item that's come up I find fascinating, um, the... The federal government, the, the, the housing minister, Julie Collins, has just appointed a, um, a new person to run the um, housing choices or she, um, to run um, the housing, uh, new housing situation she's setting up, public housing, National Housing Supply and Affordability Council, it's called, uh, but... Uh, one might have thought that someone like, say, yourself, someone who's worked for a long time in these sort of things might end up there, but they've certainly picked someone who's worked a long time in these sort of things, but she's the former head of Mervac, one of the biggest developers, Susan Lloyd Hurwitz, who has also uh, worked at Macquarie Bank. She's worked at the Property Council, uh, and other people going onto that board are in similar positions. There's, there seems to be no one representing, say, tenants or those who really can't afford housing or have worked on, on that side of housing for a long time. Again, they're setting up a, a board of people who come from the, um, the proper side of the industry. Yeah, I mean, the, the ALP tell us all the time who they are, don't they? Yeah, they do. Uh, but it seems it's un- I can't imagine people whose background is working for major developers uh, being all that uh, sensitive to the needs of people in the National Housing Supply and Affordability Council, whatever affordability means, of course, as well. Yeah, absolutely. All right, I think that might be 
time for us. We'll have to move on to a break and get Jack and Catherine on. But thanks so much, Shane, for coming on the show. Uh, any last words before we move on? Uh, well, looking forward to a big 2023. It was exciting housing. Um, thanks for having us again. Yeah. Cheers, Shane. Happy New Year. Any last words sounds like he's on death row. Yeah. <laughs> 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 All right. We'll find out, I guess. What's your last meal, Shane? <laughs> Good question. Eggplant parmesan. Can I have that? Uh, that's, that's a pretty good choice, <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Look, thanks, Shane, and we'll talk to you next month, mate. Thanks a lot. All right. See you. Okay. Bye. Shane McGrath there from the Housing with the Aged Action Group. And, uh, and Zeb, we're going to move on to... Um, Jack and Catherine after a quick break and um, this song, House of Straw by Anna Smirk.
Commons Conversations is a series of podcasts in which campaigners share their experiences and insights into activism, learning in movements, radical history and more. Produced by the Commons Social Change Library, it focuses on lessons learnt from involvement in First Nations, disability, AIDS, climate justice, wage theft, disaster recovery and other campaigns. To listen to the series, visit www.3cr.org.au slash acting up. All right, we're back on City Limits on 3CR, and if I've done everything right, we should have Jack and Catherine on the line. How are you doing, Jack? Are you there? Yeah, good morning. Good morning. Here. Splendid. And Catherine, are you also there? I am. Good morning. Great to hear your voices. Yes, lovely yes. to hear yours And too. great to hear yours, actually, yes. <laughs> Keeps the show going. It's where the thread of hope and the thread of um, disclosure. <laughs> yes. Um, so do you want to start um, with a chat about Louise Good and what have been the updates um, around her particular case? Yes, yeah, sorry, the um, reception wasn't that good then, um, but just received an update a week ago about Louise. Um, we know that there was extensive campaigning through 2021 to prevent her being evicted from her home in Thornbury. Um, she was a tenant from HL, um, Common Equity Housing Limited, and they evicted her on the basis of unpaid or renting. Ah, it sounds like Catherine might have dropped out there. Catherine, you're you're coming and going a bit. Could you move move around and see if we can get a better reception? Sorry. Um, we're just gonna go back to a break for a second, and I'll. Give I'm Catherine... moving. Oh, that sounds a bit better actually. Yeah. We just need I've you moved. to move around until you get a bit of a better reception because you keep on dropping I've out. Ah, oh, there. <laughs> that sounds okay now. Yeah, it sounds yeah. much better. Yeah, that's much better. Yeah, so um, just recapping, there was extensive campaigning um, from Rahu and other, a lot of other groups um, to prevent um, Louise being evicted from her Thornbury home that she'd been living in for over 30 years. Um, Common Equity Housing Limited, who were the landlord, said that she was in arrears for rent, which is untrue. Um, she suffered extensive hardship since her eviction. Louise is in her 70s. Um, and so there's a call for an inquiry into um, that eviction and into the failure of the Victorian government to protect the vulnerable, especially women and women on low incomes. Where's she so gone to? That, um, I read, and I haven't spoken to her, um, that she was actually homeless because people through um, a fund in campaign are offering her support. Um, that could have changed. Um, and there's 35 thousand signatures on that petition so far um, but we just need need to ensure that these things do not happen and that you know there's a fair process 
because what's followed is, you know, a quick fire sale of a property, a corner block in Thornbury on three titles, I believe, and um, it was sold off to a developer for a very, very low sum. And how does something like this work? Like how, um, if it's a false claim of unpaid rent, um, so it's untrue, then, Mm -hmm. you know, like how did this manage to go ahead? And that's that's a really good question because, I mean, obviously these processes like through VCAT um, and other bodies to try and prevent that from happening, um, as well as, you know, the campaigning and the people that supported Louise, at the end of the day, you've got to look at the extensive, the stress and the other pressures that people are under as they're trying to fight the right to stay in their home. Um, so that's something that needs to be taken into consideration. But I think it's just overall, overall it's, um, a com- it's, I'm not going to say a commitment, but it's just that group of people who are de- determined to profit and who have no conscience for the people involved in the processes. Yeah. So we will put the link to that petition um, in our show notes, but is there anything else mm. that listeners could be doing to help Louise or, or help this campaign? They definitely need to put pressure on Dan Andrews. They need to get involved um, and contact their local MPs um, and also make sure that they're getting involved with a housing group that's taking action, that's putting together demands, that's putting into place plans and community campaigning um, to prevent this sort of thing from happening. Um, so I know that on that note, Geelong Housing Action Group have got their first planning meeting tomorrow, Thursday, Feb 16, at face-to-face at the Trade Hall in Myers Street, Geelong. That's a really good group to get involved with. And also Defend and Extend Public Housing are also back to meeting on the steps of Parliament every Thursday um, from 12 to 1 o'clock. And we can assume um, uh, that uh, if, in fact, this housing has still remained in public hands rather than being handed over to social and community groups, this wouldn't mm-hmm. have happened. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that you've kept, you've talked earlier on in the show about what's happening in terms of social and affordable housing, you know, the negligence and the destruction that's happening in public housing, the inability to perform maintenance for an ageing population that need disability fit-outs, that need lifts that are reliable, air conditioning. Um, And, you know, if you look at Unison Housing and looking at James King, who's the new CEO, once again, he comes from an extensive new build and property development background. And Unison on their website, their claim is that he's transforming Unison into the most sought-after purveyor of social and affordable housing in Melbourne. So once again, it's all about capitalising 
there's no regard for human suffering. You know, yesterday someone was mentioning to me in the regional areas such as Seymour, the floods, people have lost their homes. Um, the Ace Caravan Park was a fallback. That's full. So people are sleeping in their cars. So the public housing that exists needs to be maintained and livable. Uh, it needs to be equipped for our ageing population. And we need, we need public housing for when floods and other factors come into play and things happen that are completely out of people's hands. Uh, yeah, and this might be a good time to segue to Jack um, mm. because there's been conversation about public slash social housing at the federal level. Um, so, Jack, do you want to give us an overview of what's been discussed there? Okay, yeah, well, uh, what's been discussed is um, community housing only. There's no um, public housing involved. Um, the I don't like to use the word social housing anymore. I'd like to rather say what I'm talking about public housing or community housing they're only hiding behind that label we've known that for a few few years now so what the government uh, is in terms of fulfilling its election promises is looking at establishing a 10 billion dollar fund called housing australia future fund and they're going to raise commonwealth bonds to finance um the grand total of 30,000 community and affordable homes over uh, five years. And apparently that $10 billion fund uh, will generate $500 million a year. So I, I presume that's in terms of income. Um, knowing what I know about how these things work, it's probably involved in the National Housing Finance and Investment Corporation whose only mandate is and it's from their website and in terms of what they do is to raise funds for community housing in other words um, privately run subsidised housing and uh, that's why I said you know it's, if you look at everything that they're doing through the cracks it's there's, there's no public housing involved now the alarming thing about it is this is sort of like the government's major effort to address the um, uh, housing crisis, the rental housing crisis. 30,000 homes over five years. And in the meantime, the Greens have gone and estimated uh, through a variety of studies that, in fact, the, um, the need is 520,000 homes or dwellings and it's rising to 590,000 and it sort of seems like a, a drop in the ocean that the the, um, the government's plan is to try and deliver 30,000 which is sort of absolutely ridiculous um, it sounds like if, if this is all they are doing they're basically abdicating any involvement in public housing at all and running a, a minor scheme on the side of their um, private business mates. Yeah, Jack, um, on that, uh, we've, there's two factors. By the day, we're getting reports about the 
Obviously, we all know it, the rise in cost of living. In fact, there was a story last week that it's gone up, um, it's, it's gone up um, the highest in 20 years. Yeah. Uh, and um, also, by the day, we get reports about one a shortage of rental accommodation and therefore rents going through the roof. And there was a report last week that in Melbourne, in the last 12 months, rents have risen, I think it's 29%. It's an incredible amount um, to a point where it's, you know, if you're on any sort of fixed income, it's almost unlivable and you can't, can't even do it. Uh, all that is a, is, goes back to our old story, but all that again is an argument for more and more real public housing, isn't it? I love the term. That's a good one. Real public housing. <laughs> so we should have those save real public housing um, coalitions <laughs> getting together. So it should look for an acronym if we don't have that. Um, but yeah, that's that, that's true. It's 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 like a, a tsunami is about to hit us, and we're doing nothing about it. Um, and I, I'd like to say to the government, why? Why? What are, what are you doing? I mean, uh, but it's it's the poor, it's the disenfranchised, and and it seems like you know there seems to be more political clout from you know middle Australia to um, keep keep these governments in in power and not hold them accountable. So I guess this this is why it is important to get get onto the steps of Parliament House um, on Thursday. And you know, let's start seeing outrage going on there, and um, and and let's start holding the government to accountable. Now, uh, I, the Greens are, are the only ones who are doing anything about it, and they've actually got a petition up and running. And they, thank goodness, the government doesn't hold the balance of power anymore in the upper houses in, in either Victoria or in the at, at the federal level, and. You know, I, I, I am heartened to see that the Greens are actually addressing this through a petition and also, you know, calling out that they will be negotiating with the government on this plan and calling explicitly for public housing to be built or required to basically increase the, the, the amount of properties available. Um, and look, I know the Greens. The Greens are very good at this. They know the difference between um, uh, public and community housing. In fact, I know. I remember a couple of years ago there was a campaign called "Everybody's Home," and they went around photographing uh, notable politicians with a, a little placard calling for more social housing. Put the photos up on their website, and. Adam Bant famously, and I got I got the JPEG of it, wrote more social where they had that in um, you know typed that in their placard, and he wrote in texture and public housing, and that's that's actually you know so he called it out very explicitly there. The Greens know what the difference is, and 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 I I, I this is probably the first time in a number of years I think the balance of power, that we have a chance to hold these um, people in government to account. And I also call on, I, you know, let's, let's start getting serious about this, and I challenge anyone who gets on the media, and I challenge the ABC, 
But when they're talking to someone about this matter and someone says social housing, the journalist should hold the person being interviewed to account and say, what do you mean? You're throwing a term around and you're talking about more public housing or more community housing. And, I, I, I mean, I was trying to go to sleep last night and someone got interviewed about this particular proposal so excited about more social housing from, a, I would say, a lobbyist group. And I would, I would say, well, the journalist should have called that person to account and said, you just said more social housing. Do you mean public housing or community housing? And um, I think that particular group was actually funded by the government. It's an advocacy group funded by the government for their funding their own lobbyists. Which, um, you know... And we're still getting... We're still getting reports from um, from super funds and from investors that they can make money out of what they call um, in affordable housing. Again, whatever that means, because if, you can't, if you've got no yeah. money, you can't afford anything. Um, yeah. But affordable housing, as long as the government gives them lots of subsidies and tax credits, etc., etc. So again, they yeah. want more and more money that should be going directly into public housing to go mm. to help them to make more money. Well, Anthony Albanese called this out in an interview I, I saw um, quite a while ago where he, he said exactly that. Oh, to make, make these um, in, investments in social housing more attractive, we need, to, we need to pour more money into it. So we're, we're giving, putting money into the private sectors to make it attractive for um, institutional investors, uh, overseas investors to put money into it. And by the way, that, that is exactly this um, Housing Australia Future Fund. The, uh, the mechanism for National uh, Housing Finance Investment Corporation is that they go to these investors and, um, and, and sell bonds. You know, we're going to pay you X percent return and, uh, and we can afford it all because we're going to make money on all this stuff we're building. Uh, Look, it's to either of you, um, the last point I raised with Shane about the government setting up this National Housing Supply and Affordability Council, and as I said then, the, the, the chairperson will be a former head of Mervac, mm -hmm. who will also work with the Macquarie Bank and on the Property Council of Australia, etc. Mm -hmm. But she's also, also on the board uh, going to be... Um, a, a former director of the Housing Choices Australia and Community Housing Industry Association, Michael Lennon. So the, the community housing sector gets a voice, but not the public housing sector. Housing economist Rachel Vitor, Land Women's and Girls Emergency Centre Chief Executive Helen Waters-Sylvia. So again, it's, it's the private sector running the government body looking at, uh, at affordable and housing supply. Yeah. Uh, it's the private sector runs a number of um, government policies, so look only at aged care as well. And, uh, well you know, and uh, it, 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 it's getting to the stage of ridiculousness. You know, it's like putting Dracula in charge of uh, the blood bank and calling for more blood donations, and it's all it's all going out of public hands and. Uh, yeah, no, it's, 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 a, it's a freezing frenzy um, is about to happen. As I noticed, they're also calling for an increase in communal rental assistance, which admittedly also does go to 
effectively qualify in the private uh, in, uh, housing market if they can still afford to be in the private housing rental market. Um, but it certainly does go directly to the community housing um, providers uh, per tenant, uh, unseen by the tenant. And uh, right now it's about $70 uh, a week, so it's not that much, but it's still, well, not that much. It's still, still quite a bit. But, you know, so they're looking at multiples of that to, um, to increase as well. Um, Catherine, all, all just on that point, just give yeah. Catherine again, on that very point about increasing the mm-hmm. rental assistance, uh, the opposition has come out and said it opposes it because it will cause an increase in inflation. That must be a real worry for you. And that's absolutely insane. And, you know, Kevin, talking about the setting up of that group with no actual residents, no one with a social conscience on the board no-one that's looking at the key human rights issues involved is totally applicable to the rental assistance argument as well. You know, you've talked about the cost of living. We know about the increase in utilities. And people are really, really struggling. And we stepped up to this before, after the Second World War, and built the public housing So we need to build the public housing. We need to give people a livable income to live on and make sure that there is representation um, and independent bodies that are holding everyone accountable to what they need to be and should be delivering as governments and also as corporations, corporations that are feeding off um, people's hardship and misery. That's all I can say. Well said, though. Well said. In fact, money's around to help this sector a lot. I mean, the Greens are called out. Was it two hundred and fifty billion dollars we're 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 paying for the stage free tax cuts for the rich? Exactly. Dollars. You know, we, we exactly. can solve the public housing crisis in this country with, pro, with less than half of that. Um, but anyway, greens.org.au slash housing, that's where their petition's at. And I, you know, I think encourage the greens to keep negotiating with the government and not buckle or, or compromise or concede, because, I mean, the government mm. will fight tooth and nail against public housing. It's shocking to say they will fight tooth and nail against public housing. Um, but if the pressure's there, government is known to backflip on policies. Yeah, we're going to finish up. We're out of time, but just a little mm. bit finish on the point Catherine raised about what used to be. Uh, we've mentioned several times what used to be called the Housing Commission in this state years ago had its own construction authority building public housing and training young workers, etc. So, yes. If I even get back to that. That sounds fantastic. So the key in the interim is community campaigning, is collaboration between all the housing action groups, and it's up to individuals to take, um, you know, action with their local MPs and to keep putting the pressure on. Okay, thanks, Catherine. We've really got to go, but uh, we'll talk to you again next month, and thanks for your time again. Thank you. Thank you. 
There we go. That was Catherine and Jack. Um, we're on City Limits on 3CR. And next week, well, we're still sort of planning, but we're hoping to get Helen Vandenberg on if possible and Kevin might be away doing fun things. I will be. <laughs> You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.